we don't understand. We just have to trust that God is working out His perfect will for us. John 14, you have your Bibles. Jesus telling His disciples about that wonderful heavenly place. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus told his disciples about a place that he was preparing for them. Last week we talked about that place. But then he transitions from talking about that place to talking about the person. Not only is heaven a real place, but heaven is about a real and royal person. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I want to tell you this morning about the royal person of heaven. And that Jesus is that royal person, and that he is the best thing about heaven. He truly is heaven's greatest reward. And I want to share, I would love to have a whole hour or two to share all the things that I have on my heart to share with you about Jesus. But I'm going to share with you as much as I possibly can this morning, because I want us to understand that there's nothing greater, and there's no one greater than Jesus himself, not only in heaven, but right here on earth. Nothing greater, no one greater, no greater pursuit, no greater reward, no greater riches than Jesus Christ himself. In fact, he says here in verse 3, I go and prepare a place for you, yes, but I will come again and receive you to that place, or did he say receive you to myself? He said receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. You see, heaven is about where Jesus is. That's the greatest part of heaven. And that's that Jesus will be there. Let me share with you, first of all, that Jesus is undivided unity with God. You know, there would be some that say that Jesus is not God. That is not the testimony of Scripture. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In the same book, Jesus said, if you've seen the, me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. In John chapter 1, verse 1. John writes these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know he's talking about Jesus here? Well, because he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He says he was in the beginning with God. He says all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ is God himself. He's God the Son. There's God the Father. There's God the Son. And there's God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity, all equally God. We cannot make Jesus lesser than what he is. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is equal with God. Paul wrote that in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He said about Jesus, being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus, Paul also wrote in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the image of God. 
He said Jesus is the image. That word means the express image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Why were you created? There it is right there. There's your purpose. You were created for Christ Jesus. All things were created through him, for him. He's before all things. By him everything continues to exist, he says. He holds it all, as we're just saying, in his hand. And it says in verse 18, he's the head of the body, that is the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that in all things Jesus may have the preeminent place. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus is the fullness of God. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So Jesus dwells in undivided unity with God. He is God himself, he is equal with God, and he's the image and fullness of God. That is the testimony of Scripture. That's why, that's what we need to understand. That's what we need to believe, that Jesus Christ is God. You know, if Jesus were not God, then he wasn't perfect. You see, because only God can be perfect. And if Jesus wasn't perfect, then there was no spotless, sinless sacrifice for your sins. And if there was no spotless, sinless sacrifice for your sins, then there was no forgiveness of sins. And if there's no forgiveness of sins, then you're still in your sin. And if you're still in your sin, you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. So if Jesus ain't God, you're going to hell. Amen? That's the very foundation of our faith, that Jesus is who the Scripture says He is, the sinless Son of God, who is God Himself. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is unequaled in splendor and glory. You know, when most people talk about heaven, what do they talk about? Streets of gold, right? Gates of pearl, right? The crystal sea, right? When most people talk about the book of Revelation, what do they talk about? The end of the world, right? The bad things that are going to happen. They talk about fear. But the witness of this great book of the Bible, Revelation, is found in verse 1. Revelation 1.1, the first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the last book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, and every book in between, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus told those two disciples on the road to, Dema on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. It says he, the, Luke made the reference. He said he took the scriptures and started in Moses and the prophets and showed them, Jesus showed these two disciples all about himself. Then Jesus himself said later in that chapter, he said all the things written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concern me or about me. So the testimony of scripture as well as the book of Revelation, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It all points to him. So the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And heaven is his heaven. And it's centered around him, and it's for his glory. You know, John was the writer of the book of Revelation. He's the one to whom Jesus entrusted these visions. He's the one that Jesus told to write these things down. And I'm glad he did, so we would have a record of them. And it would inspire us and encourage us during hard times. And see, that's why John wrote it, but the church was under severe persecution, and it encouraged them and it blessed them. John didn't see, John's 
What John saw most in Revelation was Jesus. In fact, there are four visions in Revelation that John saw about Jesus. He didn't see four visions of anything else. He saw visions of other things, but he never saw them four times. But Jesus was what John saw four times. In fact, John saw Jesus in his glory before the book of Revelation. In Matthew chapter 17, we see John's first vision of Christ's glory. He was on the mountain of transfiguration. You remember Jesus brought Peter, James, and John to the mountain of transfiguration. The Bible says that there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. That is, they were able to see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. And Moses and Elijah came down from heaven and visited them there. And said Peter and James and John fell on their face and became as dead men. They trembled at seeing the glory and splendor of Christ. We see John's second vision here in Revelation 1. If you have your Bibles or if you want to look at the screen, the scripture says in verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. By the way, that's God's will for us every day, to be walking in His Spirit. But today is the Lord's day. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday. And he heard, he said, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which we learn later in this chapter are the seven churches. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. By the way, Jesus is in the midst of his churches. Jesus is in our midst this morning. The greatest thing about our worship this morning is not who all is here. We're so glad you're here, but the, the main reason we're here is because Jesus is here. Our worship's directed to him. He's the audience that we worship to. He's the one that we're giving our attention and our time to this morning. Not the musicians, not the preacher, but to Jesus. We're listening to him speak to us. We're worshiping him this morning. He's in the midst. John said his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, John said, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John fell at his feet as dead. The second vision he had of Christ. The first time he saw Christ in his glory, he fell on his face as a dead man. Second time he sees Christ in all of his glory, same thing happens. You know, if Jesus were to walk in here in all of his splendor and glory, we wouldn't be standing. We wouldn't be raising our hands. We wouldn't be singing. We would be doing what Peter, James, and John did on the mountain of transfiguration. We'd be doing what John did. We would be so overcome. We would be so overwhelmed. We would be trembling with fear because of the perfect holiness of God and a recognition of our unholiness. Isaiah saw God in his holiness, and he cried out, Woe is me! We would all fall flat on our faces before him. We would tremble as dead men because of Jesus is unequaled in splendor and glory. 
Paul got a glimpse of this magnificent glory on the road to Damascus. When that bright light shone out of heaven and that thundering voice spoke to him. Paul was blinded and fell on his face as a dead man as well. John had a third vision of Jesus in John chapter in Revelation chapter 5, verse, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at these more in detail, but let me read these first few verses for us in chapter 5 of Revelation. John said, I saw in the right hand him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to take or loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. But John had a third vision of Christ's glory. He had a fourth vision in Revelation chapter 19. As he sees Jesus coming back to earth, who will rule for a thousand years. John said, I saw in verse 11 of Revelation 19, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him in white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that is the Word of God, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on, on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John's third vision of Jesus Christ was his coming back as conquering king. Where the kings of the earth will bow before him and he will rule this earth. The only time there will be peace on earth is that thousand year reign of Christ when he comes back to reign. John's that's John's fourth vision. John's last vision of Christ we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. Verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it, John says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamp are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. John saw Jesus in perfect light. That the, There was no night in heaven there was no sun. There was no moon. Where did the light emanate from? It came from the glory of Jesus Christ. Perfect light that filled every corner of, the, of, of heaven. Here in this room we have shadows because we cannot create. Man cannot create perfect light. Even the sun cannot, is not the perfect light because there's still shadows. And there are even shadows itself on the sun. But Jesus Christ is perfect light. And his light will light up the universe. There will be no need of the sun or the moon. You know, W.A. Criswell, former and probably the most famous pastor at First Baptist Dallas, said, when John looked into heaven and he saw the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and the crystal sea and the pearly gates, his soul didn't tremble, nor did his spirit quake. But when he looked at Jesus, 
when he saw deity resurrected and glorified. He fell at his feet as a dead man. Listen, Jesus is unequaled in splendor and glory. Oh yes, the streets of gold are going to be wonderful. The gates of pearl are going to be beautiful. The fact that there will be no sorrow, no dying, no death, that's going to be wonderful. But listen, that's not the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is Jesus himself. He's unequaled in splendor and glory. You're not going to be worried about what you're walking on when you get to heaven. You're not going to be worried about what you're walking through when you get to heaven. You're going to be wanting to see the face of the one that died for you, that rose again for you, that you've lived your life for. You're going to want to see Jesus in all of his glory. And at that moment, you'll be able to bear it. You won't have to fall on your face as a dead man. If he were to appear today, we would because we cannot bear it. But we will be given a glorified body and a renewed body to be able to bear the fullness of his glory. And then we will praise and worship him for all of eternity. Jesus is unequaled in splendor and glory. Let me tell you something else about Jesus. He is undisputed. He has undisputed worthiness. Go back to Revelation 5. And imagine this scene with me as I read the first seven verses. John is swept into heaven. He is ushered into the very center of the universe from which all things exist. The throne room of God. There he sees the throne. He sees God on the throne. He sees all the saved of God around the throne. He sees the Holy Spirit before the throne. He sees all the creation around the throne, praising and worshiping God. And he's captivated by all the sights and sounds, the thunder and the lightning, the emerald rainbow, the crystal sea, and the never-ending sounds of praise. Just imagine that. It's hard for us to grasp, I know. But then he notices in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll. And this scroll was written on both sides. And it had seven seals. And he hears an angel peeling forth throughout the universe. Who is worthy to open this scroll? And then a deafening silence comes over all of heaven. Is there no one worthy to step forward and to take this scroll from the hand of the one on the throne? John begins to weep uncontrollably because no one was found worthy. I want you to notice the universal worthlessness of man. No one in heaven, verse 3, or on earth, or under the earth, in hell, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. The question the angel asks is, who is worthy, not who is willing? There have been many willing throughout the ages to take that scroll. And by the way, what is this scroll? What is this scroll? What is its significance to mankind? This scroll, when God created the heavens and the earth, he gave Adam and Eve dominion over all the earth. He gave that to man. Adam and Eve, because of their sin and rebellion against God, sold it to Satan for a piece of fruit. Just like Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Adam and Eve sold their birthright, this title deed to earth, for a piece of fruit. And don't be too hard on them because you're selling more significant things than that for junk in your life too, and so have I. Charles, uh, Adrian Rogers put it this way. To put it simply, he said, Adam and Eve sold the farm. And it was this title deed to earth was given by God to Adam, who lost it through sin to Satan. And for that reason, Satan is in control of the world from the time of Adam until the glorious appearing of Christ. But how can it be retrieved? 
Who can get it back for us? Who is worthy? There have been many who are willing. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler. Today, Putin, Obama, Hillary, Trump, ISIS. All of them are ready to take control of the earth. Willing to, but not worthy. No one was found worthy. It was universal worthlessness. Not a single man or woman in all the billions of people who've ever lived were found fit to take this title deed, this scroll from the hand of God. One author wrote this, if you were to take all the billions of people that have ever lived, and you were to line them up in single file, and they were to pass by this receptacle, and they were to place in it all of their goodness, by the way, none of us are good. The Bible says not even one. But let's just say all of our good deeds. We were to place them in a receptacle, all the billions of people, and you take all that good that everybody had ever done, and you place it in one man. That one man is still not worthy to open that scroll. Still not worthy to take it from the hand of the one who holds it. And that's why John began to weep. Oh, no, we're lost. Oh no, we're doomed. My friends, I want you to know, without Jesus, you are doomed. You are lost. No religion on earth that has ever existed can help you. Not even the Baptist. You will go to hell, religious, if you miss Jesus. The angel says to John, stop your crying. There is one who has prevailed to open the scroll. There is one who is worthy. And who is it? Jesus. And why is Jesus worthy? He says, first of all, it's because of his rule. He is from the Lion of Judah. He is from the Root of David. Jesus descends from the Lion, L-I-N-E, of Judah. He is called the Lion of Judah. Lion being the king of beasts. He says he's the root of David. God told David, David, you'll never not have a descendant who sits on the throne. He said, in fact, from you is coming one who will rule forever and ever. God was pointing David to Jesus Christ. Jesus was from the line of David. He's the root of David. He's speaking that Christ will come as king and will rule the earth. Notice also the reason he's worthy is because of his redemption. The angel spoke of, of the Lion of Judah. But when John turned to see this lion, what did John see? Did he see a lion? What did John see when he turned? What did he see? A lamb. A lamb. And he saw this lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus is referred directly as the lamb only twice in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament he's referred to the lamb only twice. Only twice in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is Jesus called the lamb. Only once in the book of Acts and only once in the letters of Paul and Peter. But in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the Lamb 28 times. More than in all the rest of Scripture. You see, the theme of the Lamb is important because it represents the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The one who paid the price for our sins. The one who's redeemed us unto God. There is no salvation apart from the slain Lamb of God. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, Jesus is the only one worthy to break the seal, and he has bought back, he has redeemed what mankind lost. And notice his renown. Christ is worthy because of who he is. You see, it looks like he's got seven eyes, seven horns, and seven spears. That's, that's a pretty weird-looking person. Listen, these are symbols. A lot of this is symbolic. Seven is a perfect number. It represents completion, totality, perfection. So when John sees, and he's beginning to describe Jesus, remember, remember I picked on Riley Stringer last week, and I was talking about if he were tried to describe his the girl he had his eye on, I'd say, okay, Riley, why do you like her? And he would just go, well, uh, uh, well, uh. You know, that's how John is. He's seen Jesus. How do you describe Jesus when you see him? You're a human being. You're limited. You're finite. How do you describe the infinite? And Jesus, and John is using imagery here. He's saying it's seven eyes. I mean, seven horns. In the Old Testament, a horn was a symbol of power and authority and strength. He had seven horns. That is, he was perfect in power. He was omnipotent, all-powerful. He had seven eyes. Weird-looking dude. No, he didn't have seven eyes, literally. Eyes represent vision, wisdom, everywhere seeing, all-knowing, the omniscience of Jesus Christ. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Seven spirits of God. Seven, the number of perfection. The spirits of God upon, unto all the earth. These represent Jesus' perfect presence, that he is everywhere. He is omnipresent. You see, Jesus Christ is worthy because he is the perfection and fullness of God. There's undisputed worthiness in Jesus Christ. And because of who Jesus is, because of this undivided unity with the Father, because he's unequaled in splendor and glory, because he has undisputed worthiness, therefore we read in Revelation 5 this united worship in heaven. Look with me at verse 8. Now when he had taken, now when this lamb, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, that's all of creation, by the way, and the 24 elders, that's all the redeemed of all the ages. So you have everything there around the throne. They fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, by the way, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are never forgotten. Your prayers are recorded in heaven. You may not think they're answered. You may not even think they're heard. But a prayer prayed in earnestness of spirit. Talking to, you're talking directly to God. They're never forgotten. They ascend it to, to God, the Bible says, day and night, like incense burned in the temple. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, there is that, un, that united worship. All the redeemed of the ages, all of creation, joining in this song. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's John's way of saying, I couldn't even count the throngs of people that were there. Millions, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. The theme of their worship, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. 
Verse 12, they stated the things that Jesus deserved to have. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. These were things that nobody on earth ever gave him when he was on earth. In fact, they gave him the antithesis of all those things. Weakness, poverty, foolishness, weakness, dishonor. All of those, none of those things were given to Christ when he was on the earth. But now in heaven, he's receiving them. He is being praised. And notice this great throng. It says in verse 9, Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Chapter 7, verse 9 shows this as well. He's, John said, I saw a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, tongues, standing before the throne. Now, you say, does that mean that everybody on earth is going to be saved? No, he's saying that, every, that people out of every nation, people out of every tribe, people out of every language will be saved. You see, Revelation tells us from this verse right here that God is going to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to be saved. No matter where they are scattered over the face of the earth, no matter how deep and remote a jungle they may live in, God says over and over in Scripture, I could take you, but that's not the point of this message, and show you that like he said, Titus said, Paul said to Titus, the grace that is required for salvation has appeared to all men. For God is willing that none should perish, but that all should repent. And because God's mercy and God's gospel has gone out to all the world, there will be people from every people group, every nation, every tribe, every language group that will be represented in heaven. They'll have heard the gospel, they'll have been saved, but there'll also be people from every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language in hell because they heard the gospel and they rejected it. They heard about Jesus and they spurned him. The, un, the united worship in heaven. One author wrote this, The triumphant anthems swell and roll and thunder out to the farthest reaches of space. They awaken the echoes of the everlasting hills. They reverberate and throb until all of heaven is filled with praise. Just as a great crowd will pick up a slogan and beat it out in unison, so over yonder they thunder out the theme, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing, Worthy is the Lamb. Amen? Amen? Worthy is the Lamb. Let's join Him. Worthy is the Lamb. Join Him. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Is He worthy? Oh, He's worthy in heaven. Is He worthy today? Is He worthy in your life? Is He worthy in your home? Is He worthy of your time? Is He worthy of your attention? Is He worthy of your money? Is He worthy of your energy? Is He worthy? And let's live like it. Let's live like it. This is, remember what Jesus taught us to pray. Christy just sang it. Thy will be done. Y'all finish that for me. Did I just show you how his will is done in heaven? Did I? Did you just read how his will is being done in heaven? Is that what he wants done here? Is that what he wants done in your life? Is that what he wants done in your home? Your business? Your pleasure? Your free time? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to see one more thing as we close. The unrestrained witness of creation. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 5. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, 
and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them. So John sums it all up, says everybody, every creature, not just humans, but every creature that ever lived, heaven and earth, under the earth, such as are in the sea, he said, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and praise be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. All of creation, this unrestrained witness, all of creation joining witness to who Christ is. It's like Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name that's above every name that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of things in earth, things in heaven, and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day, dear friends, whether you do so here or do so in heaven or hell or wherever you are. There is no other place, by the way, after you die. You will call Jesus Lord. Theologian John Phillips writes this, From every possible sphere and from every single tongue, there rings out an acknowledgement at last. Jesus is Lord. There will not be a single dissenting voice, not even Satan's. The fallen angels, the demons, the angels imprisoned in the abyss, the demon hordes, Satan himself, the wicked, those Christ-rejecting sinners of earth, one and all acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Deep in every heart will be the absolute conviction that the choice of Jesus is wise and just and blessed and honorable and glorious and irresistible. The supreme tragedy of an eternity in hell will be to know that there, shut out from the focal center, sentenced to the farthest, darkest, loneliest extremes of separation, his rejectors still have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He will be praised at the focal center of things by the angels and the redeemed of all the angels with, all, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And he will be praised at the farthest circumference of things by every damned and outcast soul with sobs and tears and choking cries. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Dear friends, today is that opportunity for you. Today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Open your heart and proclaim Jesus as Lord of your life. Ask him today to forgive your sin and to save you, to redeem you to himself, to wash you clean with his blood. Give your life to him and you'll find that he gives his, already has, fully to you but you'll receive the fullness of his life in yours. Dear Christian, listen, I know life's hard. I know, how, I know the pull of the world just like you do. I'm no different from you in that regard and that respect. I know what it is to drift small decision by small decision away from God. 
and to look at your life and look back and say, how in the world did I ever get to this point? That is a, unfortunately, a common experience for most, probably 100% of believers. That describes you today. You realize you've drifted from God. Look back and see the one that I've described as best I could today, Jesus. Look back and see who he really is. Undivided unity with God. He's God. Unequaled in splendor and glory. Unmatched in worthiness. Nobody compares with him. Why have I given my life and time and attention to junk when that's what God's given me? So come back to him. You're just one 180 degrees away. You say, I got a long way to go to come back to God. No, you don't. All you got to do is a 180. Just turn around. The parable of the prodigal son tells us that. The prodigal son went out and wasted his life away from the father. But he came to the end of himself. He realized that he had wasted his life. And he made a decision, I'm going to get back, get up and I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go back to my father. It says he got up and he started back. And his father saw him from a long way off. Listen, the Father sees how far you are from Him, but He still loves you. He's been looking for you. He's been waiting for you to come to this moment in your life. And he said, Jesus said, and the Father ran to meet Him. Ran to meet Him. The only time in Scripture wherever God was ever in a hurry was to find a lost soul. Ran to meet Him and fell on Him and embraced Him and kissed Him and brought Him home and put a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, and shoes on his feet, and threw a party for him, and celebrated, called all his friends, said, my son, which was lost, is found again. All you got to do is a 180. That is, you've got to repent. You've got to acknowledge that all that junk you've been living for is worthless. Just turn your back to it, and turn to Christ, and say, Lord, I'm coming home. He'll be right there, because he loves you. And he wants you to see how much he loves you. He wants you to experience how much he loves you. He wants you to experience the, the joy that he has for you in this life and the one to come. Jesus is the royal person of heaven. But his will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let him be the royal person that reigns in your heart. Let your heart and your life be a little bit of heaven on earth. Let's bow together.